quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Big news on Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, the Trump team, and voting software all breaking in just the last few hours. The lead starts right now. Grand jury subpoenas from Georgia and the Justice Department showing investigations of top Trump allies are intensifying. At the same time, top Democrats are now joining with Republicans to press for answers about that unprecedented FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. And starvation, poverty, and brutality. One year since the fall of Kabul, CNN is live in Afghanistan's capital city to show you what life is now like under Taliban rule and asking Afghan leaders about a known terrorist who lived in their midst. Plus, what may be a silent spread of polio, the virus detected in New York City wastewater, why health officials fear hundreds of cases may be out there. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead and an avalanche of major developments when it comes to Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow democracy and corruptly stay in power. Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani has been informed by Georgia prosecutors that he is a target of their investigation into whether Trump and his allies broke the law in trying to overturn the 2020 election in that state. Giuliani is scheduled to appear before the Fulton County Grand Jury on Wednesday. This news comes just hours after a federal judge ruled that Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina must testify before the very same Georgia Grand Jury. Graham's legal team had been arguing that Graham did not act inappropriately when he phoned Georgia election officials after the 2020 election. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, has accused Graham of implying that Raffensperger should try to throw away ballots. Also today, a new report in The Washington Post says that a team of computer experts working with Trump's team copied sensitive data from Georgia's election systems and that lawyers allied with Trump asked a forensic data firm to access election systems in at least three battleground states. This afternoon, we also learned a federal Justice Department grand jury has subpoenaed Trump White House lawyer Eric Hirschman. Hirschman probably best known for telling the January 6th committee about his conversation with John Eastman. That Eastman, of course, is the lawyer who came up with that crackpot unconstitutional scheme to steal the electoral votes in the House. Here's what Hirschman says he told him. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right. I said, I. But I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth from now on. Orderly transition. Eventually he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. All of this as the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Chairman Mark Warner of Virginia, joins with his Republican counterpart, Senator Marco Rubio, to ask for more details from the Justice Department about their activities and about what exactly was in those boxes that the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago last week. Let's get straight to CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, let's start with Georgia. What do these two developments tell you about where prosecutors in Fulton County are with their case? 
Well, Jake, what this tells us is that Rudy Giuliani absolutely has some legal peril uh, ahead of him. His lawyer was told uh, by prosecutors who are uh, running this special grand jury in, in Fulton County that uh, he is now a target of their investigation. Not exactly surprising. He has been asking them, after all, he says, he's been asking them repeatedly whether uh, Giuliani was a target. And he says until today, uh, he, was not, he, he was not being told that. Uh, Giuliani is still scheduled to appear before this grand jury on Wednesday. It's not clear. We won't, we, he won't say whether Giuliani is going to answer questions or whether he's going to uh, take the Fifth Amendment. Obviously, that's his right. Uh, we obviously, you know, the Giuliani's role in all of this. Uh, he met with Georgia legislators in December of 2020 a number of times, pressuring them, trying to, to f- have them find these votes that did not exist uh, for Donald Trump and to obviously throw the election from Joe Biden in, in that state. Now, uh, this obviously is an investigation that's accelerated. You could tell that uh, they're getting closer and closer to actually bringing charges against someone. And, uh, and obviously now uh, Giuliani is being told that he could be one of those people. And Evan, what kind of questions do federal prosecutors think that Eric Hirschman uh, can help them answer in the Justice Department investigation into January 6th? Hirschman is a big witness because he had those key interactions, the one that you just described there with uh, John Eastman uh, about this uh, this theory that they had, which was you know essentially setting aside the electors, uh, uh, first of all, stopping the the, the count, and then trying to find a way to get these fake electors, including the ones that they were trying to get from Georgia, to throw the election to keep Donald Trump in in, in power. Now, Hirschman was a White House lawyer, so that means he very much likely had interactions and conversations with the former president, and we know. Jake, that the Justice Department is looking to find a way to, to, to get to those conversations. We know one of the things they're, doing to do, they're trying to do is prepare a, a legal fight to try to make sure they can get to some of those conversations with him and with other lawyers. All right. At least two investigations seemingly heating up. Thank you so much, Evan Press. Appreciate it. Turning now to the new push for details about what exactly the FBI removed from Mar-a-Lago. As CNN's Kristen Holmes reports for us now, top Republicans and Democrats are joining together now to ask the Justice Department for more insight into the classified documents taken from Donald Trump's home. Today, bipartisan calls for transparency into last week's FBI search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. In a letter to the Director of National Intelligence, the top Democrat and Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee asking for information on the reasoning behind the search and the documents seized beyond what was revealed in the unsealed warrant. I'm confident the intelligence community will do a damage assessment that is, I think, fairly routine when there has been uh, the potential risk of disclosure of uh, national security information or classified information. This as former President Trump, his allies and aides work to question the search. We have this list from the FBI, but we don't have conclusive as to whether or not this actually is classified material and whether or not it rises to the level of the highest classified material. And explain away the 11 sets of classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago starting with claims of cooperation. And my father has worked so collaboratively with them for months. In fact, the lawyer uh, that's been working on this was totally shocked. He goes, I had such an amazing relationship with these people. And all of a sudden, on no notice, they sent, you know, 20 cars and, and 30 agents. Then unfounded accusations. Quite honestly, I'm concerned that they may have planted something. You know, at this point, who knows? I don't trust the government. And baseless blame. The GSA has since come out, the Government Service Administration said they mistakenly packed some boxes and moved them to Mar-a-Lago. That's not on the president. Finally, 
a defense of declassification. President Trump made it his mission to declassify and be transparent, declassifying whole sets of documents. And this is a key fact that most Americans are missing. President Trump, as a sitting president, is a unilateral authority for declassification. While presidents do have the power to declassify information, there are federal regulations that lay out a process. Nobody briefed me or informed me that this policy or order was in effect. And I know of no logistical train, no paper train at all that, that says what's declassified and what's not. Over the weekend, new details on the June meeting between investigators and Trump's attorneys at the Palm Beach Resort. Sources telling CNN one of Trump's lawyers signed a letter asserting there was no more classified information being stored on the Florida property after justice officials left with classified materials. Yet the unsealed property receipt from Monday's search listed classified documents as being seized by the FBI, including some with the high-level, quote, top-secret SCI designation. And Jake, while the former president continues to attack the FBI and the Department of Justice on his social media page, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security are warning of increased threats against federal law enforcement as well as government personnel and buildings in the wake of that Mar-a-Lago search. Now, just moments ago, the Department of Justice unsealed charges against a Pennsylvania man who was threatening to kill FBI agents on his social media page, included posts that had... I sincerely believe that if you work for the FBI, then you deserve to die, among others. So you can see some of that heightened rhetoric. Jake? Mm. Kristen Holmes, thank you so much. Uh, Leon Panetta joins us now. He served as Secretary of Defense and CIA Director for President Obama and White House Chief of Staff under President Clinton. Mr. Secretary, good to see you. So former FBI Director Andrew McCabe said on CNN earlier today that he's never seen this level of threats against the Bureau in more than two decades he served there. We literally saw a Trump supporter posting on Trump's own social media company that, that he was headed to the FBI office in Cincinnati, armed, and after a standoff, he ended up dead. You heard the new report from Kristen just now. And yet we haven't heard uh, from Trump or people around him uh, any attempt to calm matters. All we hear is, is more potential incitement and allegations from his lawyers that maybe the FBI planted information. Uh, what's your reaction to all this? Well, Jake, it's... Uh... It's a very serious and dangerous moment um, because uh, what's happened is that uh, social media uh, and those who basically want to incite others uh, now have a free reign to basically go after uh, the FBI and law enforcement officials involved with the situation. And that is a threat on their lives. Uh, And that's dangerous. Uh, That's dangerous to our law enforcement it's dangerous to our rule of law. Uh, and it really is incumbent uh, on the former president and those around him to basically say, uh, please stand back uh, and allow this investigation to proceed as it should. Uh, he took a long time in eventually saying something about uh, what happened on January 6th. He should not delay uh, with regards to saying something that will calm people today. I know you worked for then-President Bill Clinton, who did not like any of the investigations going on to him, whether led by Kenneth Starr or Congress. Uh, And and yet, I don't recall him ever inciting his supporters the way that we're seeing Donald Trump do so, although I'm sure he he may have been tempted some days. Uh, You know, I I think uh, we've seen former presidents uh, who have been under investigation 
uh, who have basically uh, sat back and allowed uh, the Justice Department or those investigations to proceed uh, without inciting people. Uh, I think former presidents had a deep respect for the rule of law. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case with Donald Trump. The violent threats online include, a quote, a threat to place a so-called dirty bomb in front of FBI headquarters, quote, a poster writing Attorney General Merrick Garland needs to be assassinated and, quote, kill all feds. Uh, how does one in law enforcement or you were the head of the CIA, how do you go about deciding which threats um, could be acted upon and, and which ones might just be keyboard warriors letting off steam? Well, it's a, it's a tough challenge, obviously. Look, I, the bottom line here is that this is a serious matter. I know that politics has been involved uh, in, in trying to uh, somehow label this uh, on one side or the other. Uh, but let me tell you something. As somebody involved with intelligence matters, uh, this is a serious issue that involves classified information. The reason we classify information is to protect our national security and make sure that that information doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And so it is really important that this investigation proceed to determine uh, just exactly uh, what level of classified information was involved here and whether anybody else had access to it. With regards to the threats that are out there, uh, I think it is very important to have law enforcement determine which ones are credible and which ones are just uh, inciting for the sake of inciting. That's, that's not easy, but it's what needs to be done right now in, in a situation where these threats are coming at you a mile a minute. So you're obviously very well versed in dealing with classified material. Former Trump aides are now trying to claim that there was a standing order by the president, Donald Trump, to declassify any document that left the West Wing for Trump's resident. Is that how declassification works, even with some of the nation's most guarded secrets? Uh, you know, that's nonsense. And, uh, and he knows it. Uh, the reality is that there is a process for declassifying information. Uh, and if presidents want to declassify, they have to follow that process, which basically requires that it be referred to the agencies that are responsible for classifying that material. They have something to say as to whether or not that material should be declassified. So there is nothing that I'm aware of that indicates that a formal step was taken by this president to, in fact, declassify anything. Right now, this is pretty much BS. Leon Panetta, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ahead, Brittany, Brittany Griner's legal team appeals her nine-year sentence, but could her attempts to leave a Russian prison complicate a potential prisoner swap, which the Kremlin now confirms is being discussed? But first, one year after the fall of Kabul, what Afghans have to go through to get just a morsel of food or the struggle for women to go to school what the streets are like now under Taliban control. We'll take you there. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead celebrations of sorts in the streets of Kabul today. The Taliban declaring today a national holiday they say is commemorating one year since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The people celebrating uh, seem limited to the ruling Taliban and its extremist supporters because in just one year, the standard of living for the people of Afghanistan has plummeted. 
Nearly half of Afghanistan's population is hungry, according to the United Nations. Almost everyone is living in poverty. And as CNN's Clarissa Ward reports for us now, women and girls in Afghanistan have lost nearly everything they once had. It's a three-hour journey from Shakila's home to the center of Kabul. But each morning, she and other women make this walk, driven by hunger and the need to feed their children. Their destination is this bakery, one of many across the capital, where crowds of women now sit patiently every day, quietly hoping for handouts. So all the women have been pressing pieces of paper with their phone numbers into our hands. They're desperately hoping that maybe we can help them. Shakila tells us on a good day, they might get two or three pieces of bread. And every morsel counts. Were you doing this a year ago, or has the situation become worse in the last year? There's no work this year, she says. My husband has a cart, but now he only earns 30 to 40 cents a day. One year after the Taliban took power, Afghanistan is isolated and increasingly impoverished, largely cut off from the global banking system and the foreign aid that once funded almost 80% of this country's budget. It is also unmistakably safer. One thing the Taliban has been able to improve is security. Outside Kabul's airport, shops are open and the streets are calm. Excuse me? You say it's first... Cover my face? Okay. A far cry from the chaotic scenes we witnessed last summer. He told me to cover my face, but he doesn't want to comment on that truncheon he's carrying. You want yeah. it's my... Tens of thousands risked life and limb to try to flee the country. Stay behind him! Stay behind him! Many feared for their lives. Others that the Taliban would take the country back to the Middle Ages. For these girls, that fear has come true. They were just a year out from graduating when the Taliban announced a de facto ban on girls' secondary education after sixth grade. Now they have improvised ways to defy the ban, setting up unofficial schools where they continue their studies. Nahid Sadat's dreams of a diploma may have vanished, but her drive has not. I always say to myself that uh, I am so powerful, I am strong, and these things can't bring my, uh, my aims and my dreams and uh, what, what I, I want to do. Do you ever feel scared? Yes. Uh, it's so risk for, for us that uh, we, do, we, we don't cover our face and we study our lessons. You're very brave. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Girls' education is one of the main reasons no country in the world has yet recognized the Taliban government, a point we put to Foreign Ministry spokesman Abdul Kahar Balki. When will the Taliban allow teenage girls to go back to school? From uh, the perspective of the government, uh, there's a, a range of mix of issues. Uh, that has uh, led to the uh, temporary suspension of uh, secondary schools. The, the most important and significant uh, part of this is that the policy of the government of Afghanistan 
uh, is education for all citizens of Afghanistan. And yet all citizens of Afghanistan are not currently able to get an education. What is the holdup? It seems that uh, international actors are uh, unfortunately weaponizing uh, the issue of education. Uh, instead of coming forward and interacting positively, uh, they are trying to find moral justifications uh, for some of the inhumane policies uh, of sanctions, which is leading to the collective punishment of the entire people of Afghanistan. Do you want to see girls going to school again? The policy of the government of Afghanistan is very clear, uh, and that is education for all citizens of Afghanistan. The Taliban says it wants to see peaceful and positive relations with all countries, including the U.S. But those prospects were dramatically diminished when the head of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, was killed by a U.S. drone strike in a villa in downtown Kabul just over two weeks ago. Uh, we've made it very clear that the government of Afghanistan was unaware of the arrival or presence of uh, Mr. Zawahiri in uh, Kabul. Uh, so far we have been unable to establish the f as a fact, as a matter of fact, that Mr. Zawahiri was indeed uh, present in Kabul. Isn't that almost more frightening though, the idea that you're claiming potentially the leader of Al-Qaeda was here in the center of the city and you didn't even know about it? Again, we contend that notion that he was even present here. Uh, but even if he was, uh, these types of uh, incidents happen everywhere in the world. I but mean, they really uh, don't. I mean, how can the U.S. possibly trust the Taliban leadership, though, to stay true to its promise that it will not allow sanctuary to be granted to terrorist groups? Uh, if we look at the Doha Agreement, the uh, articles... Uh, that, are, that define the commitments of the government of Afghanistan. All of them have been fulfilled. And if we look at the commitments that the United States of America has made, sadly, uh, they have not fulfilled a single article. Uh, but we're hopeful and we continue to urge the United States uh, to adhere to that agreement. It's a brazen position that complicates efforts to unfreeze funding to help the Afghan people millions of whom remain hungry and reliant on the kindness of strangers. Jake, CNN has spoken to the U.S. envoy to Afghanistan, Tom West, who basically said that there are now no prospects in the short term for the U.S. to try to recapitalize Afghanistan's central bank. And he said that is in large part because of the issue of the sheltering of Ayman al-Zawahiri. The prospects now are very grim for any type of normalization in relations between the U.S. and the Taliban, Jake. Mm, fascinating. Clarissa, um House Republicans on the Foreign Affairs Committee are releasing a report suggesting that only a quarter of those evacuated from Afghanistan were women and children. And the State Department just told reporters the number was closer to 40 percent. You've reported that there are up to 160,000 Afghans and their families eligible to apply for special immigrant visas. What do we know about the Afghans left behind? 
Well, there are tens of thousands of them, uh, according to the State Department, potentially 160,000. The State Department saying that they don't know that they would even be able to process those while President Biden is still in office. Uh, not a week goes by that we don't get calls and messages from people who are still here desperately saying, listen, we work for the U.S. military, we work for the U.S. embassy. How can we get out? And there are a lot of complex bureaucracies which have made it difficult to try to process these visas. The main one, of course, is that in order to get the visa, you need to have an in-person interview. That would have taken place in the U.S. Embassy here in Kabul. That embassy is no longer open. And so there is no way now for people to go and have those interviews and no mechanism in place for that to change. One man came up to me on the street during those Taliban festivities that you talked about earlier, Jake, and taking that risk, he said, I'm scared to talk to you, but I just have to give you my phone number and tell you my name, please, can you help me? I work for the U.S. military, and I'm desperate to get out, Jake. Larissa Ward reporting for us live from Kabul, Afghanistan. Thank you so much for the excellent reporting, as always. Coming up next, author Salman Rushdie is in recovery after being attacked on stage. His family calling his injuries life-changing. How years of being a hunted man haunt this case. Stay with us. In our national lead, the family of author Salman Rushdie says that he is recovering from, quote, life-changing injuries after Friday's stabbing attack. Investigators are looking into what motivated the incident, the obvious backdrop, of course. In 1989, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini was offended by a book Rushdie wrote and declared a death sentence fatwa against him. And since then, Rushdie has spent much of his life in hiding with translators and editors associated with the book stabbed and shot at by Islamist extremists. Now, Iran has denied any responsibility for Friday's attack and blamed the stabbing on Rushdie and his supporters, though we should note Iran state media renewed the fatwa against the author a week earlier. CNN's Bryn Gingras is following the latest developments. Bryn, tell us more about Salman Rushdie's condition. Well, listen, Jake, he's getting better, but still in critical condition, but signs of improvement. So that's good news. And that's according to the author's family. He was taken off a ventilator. He was able to say a few words, but he's still not really out of the woods just yet. His son actually released a statement and said this, though his life changing injuries are severe, his usual feisty and defiant sense of humor remains intact. So that's good to hear there. Prosecutors told a judge, get this, that Rushdie has multiple stab wounds to his neck, stomach, puncture wounds to his chest and right eye, and he may actually lose sight in that eye. Now, details of the attack are coming out in this initial court hearing for Rushdie's alleged attacker, Hadi Matar, who is now charged with attempted murder and assault and is being held without bond. The 24-year-old rushed the stage on Friday where the famed author was about to speak in western New York, and he was held down by those in attendance. And the moderator, actually, author Ralph Henry Reese, also was injured, and he spoke a little about what happened to CNN's reliable sources. He was very difficult to understand. It looked like a sort of bad prank, uh, and, and it didn't have any sense of reality. And then when there was blood behind him, it became real. And Reese there visibly hurt. Injuries there, you can see. Uh, he says, though, he's not focusing on himself. He wants to focus on Salman Rushdie's recovery, Jake. Rain, what more do we know about the suspect? Well, as you said, listen, we don't know the motivation for this attack. Authorities believe Matar, who lives in New Jersey, he planned it. 
arriving in Chattanooga, New York, the day before the scheduled lecture, paying for a bus ticket with cash, using a fake ID. So there's all signs to that. As you mentioned, though, we know Rushdie has lived under serious threat because of his writings. And that's what he was actually scheduled to speak about on Friday to that crowd. Investigators now are trying to determine if this attack was motivated by that fatwa. Iran's foreign ministry, as you said, Jake, totally denying involvement in the attack and putting that blame on Rushdie and his supporters. But of course, leaders all across the world, including the president, condemning what happened. New York Governor Kathy Hochul saying a man with a knife cannot silence a man with a pen. Jake. All right, Brent Jengrass, thank you so much. Coming up next, Russia confirms Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan are being discussed as part of a possible prisoner swap, but could Griner's court proceedings slow negotiations? Stay with us. In our world lead, Brittany Griner's attorneys today officially appealed a Russian court's verdict that convicted and sentenced the WNBA started nine years in prison for drug smuggling. CNN's Fred Plykin joins us now live from Moscow. And, and Fred, Russian diplomats are, are speaking more openly now about a potential prisoner exchange that would also theoretically include detained American and former Marine Paul Whelan. Tell us about that. Yeah, Jacob, it's really been shaping up uh, over the course of the weekend where the Russians once again through their foreign ministry so that they're very willing to engage with the United States for some sort of prisoner exchange that would bring Brittany Griner home. However, now for the first time, the head of the uh, North America Department of the Russian Foreign Ministry said um, that, that he confirmed that the names currently in play are for the Russian side, uh, arms dealer Victor Boot, who's of course serving a 25-year sentence in a jail in the United States, and for the U.S. side, Brittany Griner and former Marine Paul Whelan, who, of course, is serving that 16-year sentence here in Russia for alleged espionage, uh, which he denies. The Russians, once again, however, saying they want all of these talks to happen in secret. They say there's a mechanism in place, and they certainly don't want to get any details out in the public. They say if any details do get out, exchanges can't take place, Jake. Does Griner's appeals process stand in the way in any way of any potential swap? Yeah, you know what? I was talking to her legal team uh, about that today, and they certainly don't believe that it does. They were the ones who originally said that they believed that a verdict needed to be in place against Brittany Griner. That's happened. She was obviously sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony. But they also say with the appeal that they filed today, that could be withdrawn at any time if there's some sort of exchange. They also say they're not part of any prisoner exchange talks. They don't know whether or not those talks are going on, but they certainly say they hope they are going on. Um, because the appeals process can still take a very long time, can take a month or two. And there, like in general in Russian courts, the acquittal rate or the reverse rate of verdicts certainly is not very high, Jake. All right, Fred Plekin, live for us in Moscow. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Tom Firestone. He's a former Justice Department legal advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Um, Thanks for joining us. So Russia is now admitting uh, publicly for the first time that there are, in fact, bilateral talks happening on this potential prisoner exchange involving Brittany Griner, Paul Whelan, and of course, Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. Uh, what does that tell you about their negotiating strategy that they're now admitting this? Well, they're not really telling us a lot that we didn't already know. I think it was pretty clear that that was going on. They had leaked it through their press. And the fact that they have acknowledged these negotiations removes whatever minimal doubt there was about the legitimacy of her prosecution. It's clear now they've essentially admitted that they were using this as a bargaining chip. So it makes clear why they gave her the nine-year sentence for increased leverage in these negotiations, which I think everyone knew, but now they're acknowledging it. Victor Boot is a pretty horrible guy. He's like a Bond supervillain. Um, But nonetheless, do you think the Russians would agree to do a a two-for-one trade, two Americans for him? Uh, Are there other Russians in U.S. custody who they might press to be included in an exchange? 
Well, I think they tend to like these symmetrical exchanges when it's to their advantage. There was an exchange in 2010 of 10 U.S. sent back 10 Russian spies in return for four Western intelligence assets. So when it's asymmetrical in their favor, they're fine with it. When it's not in their favor, they're not. So I think they will demand a second person be included so that it's two for two. They've The reports are that they've requested Vadim Krasikov, who, of course, is in uh, custody in Germany for life for a murder conviction. That's not really a serious counteroffer, according to the State Department. There are other Russians, hackers, fraudsters who are in U.S. custody who could be included in a two for two deal. What kind of time frame do you think we're looking at to complete this kind of prisoner exchange? I think it's going to it's not going to happen tomorrow or, you know, within the next week or immediately. These things are complicated. The Russians can be very difficult in these negotiations. I think they think they've got a lot of leverage now that Brittany Griner was sentenced to nine years. They know there's a real desire to get her out. Um, I don't think they're under the same kind of pressure to get Victor Boot out. So I think they can let this play out a little bit. And I think they're going to and they're going to try to milk it for everything they can get. So I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't hold my breath. I don't think it's going to go on forever, but I don't think it's going to be tomorrow either. Reiner's legal team filed an appeal after she was sentenced to that nine-year sentence uh, for drug smuggling charges. How do you see the uh, the appeal playing out? Is there any chance she could have this conviction overturned or her time reduced? Or, or do you do you agree with those who are, are allied with Trevor Reed, um, who was uh, recently freed, who said this has nothing to do with judges in Russia? This is all determined by Uh, the FSB and and political leaders? I think it's highly unlikely that her appeal will be successful. She's, of course, got a lot of arguments, all of which were presented to the court of first instance, but they were unsuccessful there. And I think it's unlikely that they will be successful on appeal. So I would not hold my breath for success on appeal. She might win a couple points here or there, but I don't think she's going to get a significant reduction in her sentence on the appeal. You talk about how the Russians like symmetrical trades. Um, Victor Boot is, like I said, he is a threat to the international order, a drug smuggler, an arms smuggler. Uh, Paul Whelan is falsely accused of uh, spying. And Brittany Griner had less than a gram of cannabis uh, oil. Uh, surely there must be two Russians in American prisons who are closer in symmetry to uh, Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner in the charges than Victor Boot, No. Oh, of course there are. I mean, if you're talking about substantive uh, symmetry, we don't have that in any kind of exchange here. They will say it should be two for two. It's unfair for us to give up two for only one that you're sending back to us. So I think that's absolutely right. But they, again, I think they feel like they've got a lot of leverage because we really want to get Wheelan and Griner home, and rightfully so. And I think that, you know, their target, you know, for them, the holy grail of an exchange is clearly Victor Booth. They've made no secret about that over the years. So there might be more appropriate subjects for an exchange, but that doesn't mean that the Russians will agree they're more appropriate subjects for an exchange or agree to an exchange for anybody other than Victor Booth. All right. Tom Farstown, thanks so much for your time and expertise. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, the United Kingdom becomes the first country to approve booster shots directly targeting certain COVID variants. What might that mean for the United States? That's next. Our health lead now tackling COVID, tackling monkeypox, and now polio. Polio, declared eradicated in the United States in 1979, can lead to permanent paralysis of the arms and legs, and it's now been found in New York City's wastewater samples. Health authorities are sounding the alarm to ensure children are fully vaccinated. This comes after an unvaccinated young adult 
in Rockland County, New York, was diagnosed with the virus in July, the first polio case in the United States since 2013. Let's bring in CNN's Jacqueline Howard. Jacqueline, what are officials doing to make sure children are vaccinated? Jake, health officials in New York are really trying to raise alarm about this. In Rockland County, where that case was identified that you mentioned, county officials and healthcare providers are distributing posters to help raise awareness around the situation and to really encourage parents to make sure that their children are fully vaccinated against polio. And that's because in the state of New York, the vaccination rate is lower than the national average. I'll tell you some numbers now. It looks like the national average is around 93% of children are vaccinated against polio. But in the state of New York, the average is 79%. In New York City, when you look at the city level, it's 86%. But in New York, Jake, some counties are in the 50s and 60s. So when you look at Rockland County, where that case was identified, the vaccination rate is 60%. In neighboring Orange County, it's 59%. And so that's why uh, health officials are really trying to put in that message to make sure to get vaccinated, excuse me. And when you look at the wastewater surveillance, former CDC director Dr. Richard Besser said that that's also an important response and should be continued. Have a listen. Good that, that New York is monitoring their wastewater. Uh, poliovirus is one of those viruses that's excreted uh, in, in the stool, and so you can monitor wastewater to see if it's in the community. Uh, but when you see a signal like this, it should be an alarm. It should be an alarm for every parent, for every pediatrician to ensure that every child is fully vaccinated. So we heard there, Jake, uh, Dr. Buster was speaking with our colleague Brianna Keeler in that clip, and he said that this is raising alarm. And turning now to COVID, uh, the UK today became the first government in the world to approve COVID boosters targeting the original strain and another that goes after the Omicron variant. What might this mean for the U.S., given the fact that the FDA is still waiting to approve an additional COVID booster for those younger than 50? Right. So even though we're still waiting, we could see updated boosters as early as next month, possibly in September. We do know that the Biden administration already has purchase agreements with Moderna and with Pfizer to purchase some updated boosters once they're FDA authorized. And these boosters, Jake, will specifically target, the plan is to specifically target Omicron subvariants like BA5 and BA4, which are dominant right now nationwide. If you look at the numbers, about 88.8% of all COVID-19 cases here in the U.S. are caused by the BA5 subvariant. So that's why having these updated boosters as we head into fall will be specifically important. Jake. All right, Jacqueline Howard, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just into CNN, the Justice Department now explaining why it is against revealing the reasons behind that search at Mar-a-Lago. What's being laid out in court documents just coming in? That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a peewee football coach killed in Texas and a suspected gunman now in custody. The brother of a former NFL star now facing murder charges after a fight at a game turned deadly. And one year after the fall of Kabul, Afghanistan, a damning report from Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee accusing the Biden administration of failures leading to the chaotic withdrawal of the U.S. military. Afghans chasing U.S. planes on the runway, others flooding security gates trying to leave, and a lack of U.S. staff available to manage the situation in any real way. But we start this hour 
With new details in our politics lead, the Justice Department is now opposing the release of details in the affidavit that lays out its argument for searching Mar-a-Lago. Let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Polanski. Caitlin, I want to read part of this document. It says, quote, if disclosed, the affidavit would serve as a roadmap to the government's ongoing investigation, providing specific details about its direction and likely course in a manner that is highly likely to compromise future investigative steps, unquote. That suggests that anyone that thought maybe the U.S. government was just trying to get these top secret documents back, that no, there's going to be more. That's right, Jake. I mean, we are seeing this uh, filing just come in. We haven't seen what a court will do yet with it, uh, whether they will agree with the Justice Department. But the Justice Department really is trying to hint at the seriousness of this investigation and also that it is an ongoing grand jury investigation. There could be other investigations that result from it and that they have done extensive work already. Uh, I, too, want to read a couple other things in here because there is a lot of information, if not detail itself, about the investigation. But there's information such as even when the public is already aware of the general nature of the investigation, that's what the prosecutors are writing, revealing the specific contents of a search warrant affidavit could alter the investigation's trajectory. Uh, And then as they're describing more about that, they're digging in and saying, we want to protect witnesses, we want to protect grand jury secrecy. And they also say that the fact that this investigation implicates highly classified materials further underscores the need to protect the integrity of the investigation. That is an acknowledgement there by the Justice Department that this investigation implicates highly classified materials. That's their words in the papers. And, and Caitlin, what happens next? Well, that's a great question. So the media, uh, 12 different news outlets, including CNN, are trying to get this affidavit made public. Uh, But there are lots of calls for transparency right now. It's not just the media that's asking for this. There are some Republicans on Capitol Hill that have wanted more transparency around this investigation. We will see if the court agrees with that. And of course, there is still uh, on the table these requests from both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill to have classified briefings about what was found at Mar-a-Lago. Jake? All right, Caitlin Palance, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss is Ellie Honig, is a former assistant U.S. attorney. Ellie, do you think the Justice Department is doing the right thing here trying to block release of this affidavit? Well, Jake, I'm not at all surprised that DOJ is resisting this. This affidavit, just so people understand, is the single most important document in this whole case. This is the document where prosecutors have to lay out in detail, in narrative fashion, what their probable cause is to believe that the crimes that we've seen in the prior documents were committed and that there would be evidence at Mar-a-Lago. And then they bring this document over to a judge who has to review it. And we know in this case did agree that it made out probable cause. And just for a a sense of context here, the documents that were unsealed on Friday, they total seven pages. This affidavit typically will be dozens of pages, 50 pages. I've seen 100 plus page affidavits. So, Jake, there's only two groups of people right now who have this document, prosecutors and the judge. Donald Trump does not have it. We don't have it in the public. I'm not at all surprised DOJ is resisting because to reveal this document would simply reveal the entire ongoing investigation. There was uh, speculation that perhaps DOJ was just going to, this was just about document retrieval. Uh, They issued a subpoena. They tried to uh, get these documents. They went in there. They got the documents. They'd been attempted to do so more in a friendly fashion, but that didn't work. Now they have them back. Um, But this refusal to disclose the affidavit and and the language the Justice Department uses talking about continued investigation, witnesses, grand jury. This suggests that there are criminal charges 
being brought. Uh, and it's not just a question of trying to get these documents back. Yeah, Jake, this filing does confirm that there's an ongoing criminal investigation. And really, we knew that from the start because you cannot get a search warrant by just saying to a judge, hey, judge, there's classified information. We really want to get it back in order to get a search warrant. As a matter of law, you have to establish probable cause that at least one specific federal crime was committed. We now know what those federal crimes were, Espionage Act, destruction of documents and obstruction from last Friday's documents. But yes, this has been and remains an ongoing criminal investigation. Is there a risk that the Justice Department, um, which a lot of Democrats and Republicans uh, are saying needs to be more transparent about this unprecedented raid on Mar-a-Lago, is there a risk that the Justice Department, by trying to block the release of this affidavit, looks like they're trying to be too secretive? Absolutely, there's that risk, Jake. And it's sort of a no-win situation for DOJ. By the book, as a DOJ prosecutor, it's an easy call. You fight this. You don't open up affidavits. You don't reveal ongoing investigations. But prosecutors also have to live in reality. And it's impossible to separate politics and law here. And I think the reality is it will look like there's a lack of transparency. And we're hearing calls for more transparency from both sides of the aisle. Is the affidavit something that the Trump team would want to be made public for any reason? (laughs) It's a great question. I mean, one of the reasons why DOJ does not reveal these affidavits is because you're protecting the rights of the innocent, the presumption of innocence, the rights of people who've not even yet been accused. And just so people understand, we've not seen this document, but it would lay out in detail the probable cause that DOJ used to get in that search warrant. It would lay out probable cause that crimes were committed. I don't know that Donald Trump and his supporters would want that to be out there in the public. Let's turn to the news now that Rudy Giuliani, Trump's former attorney, has been informed he's a target in the Fulton County, Georgia, district attorney investigation into the Trump team's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. What does that mean precisely that Giuliani has been told he's a target? Well, short of being told you've been indicted, Jake, that's about the worst news that you can get. Generally speaking, in any investigation, prosecutors separate people into three categories. There are witnesses who've done nothing wrong. There are subjects who maybe are in the gray area. And then there's a target. And typically what that means is that this is a person who is likely to be indicted. Now, it's worth noting the Fulton County DA has been very aggressive in the use of this target language. She has not only notified Rudy Giuliani, but at least 17 other people that they're targets. Now, none of them have been indicted yet, but it's still fairly early and that could change sometime soon. And today, a federal judge ruled that Republican Senator Lindsey Graham has to testify before that same grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia. Graham's lawyers, of course, can appeal. Do you think he'll ultimately prevail? I think he's actually got a shot here, Jake. Uh, Lindsey Graham's argument here is based on an obscure constitutional provision called the Speech and Debate Clause, which basically says that sitting members of Congress cannot be forced to answer questions elsewhere. And Lindsey Graham's argument is this does relate to my legislative duties. Now, the federal district court judge rejected that. But Graham's next step is to appeal. He's going to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is generally seen as the second or third most conservative of the 13 federal courts of appeals, Jake. Former President Trump is claiming that the FBI, quote, took boxes of privileged attorney client material and also executive privilege material, unquote, Could Trump try to go to court to block this entire process on those grounds? So usually, Jake, procedurally, a person cannot challenge a search warrant until after he's been charged and prosecutors try to use that evidence against him. Donald Trump could try to file a motion here. I think he'd lose both procedurally. I think a judge would say this is premature. And I think also on the substance, even if either of those privileges attach, it doesn't mean you get to keep the documents. They're still property of the United States government. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, one year after the fall of Kabul, 
and a scathing report from House Republicans accusing the Biden administration of significant failures in the U.S. draw from Afghanistan. Plus, the major city offering rent around 800 bucks a month. It's that and more, inspiring more than 5 million Americans to move to this major metropolitan area this year alone. Stay with us. In our world lead, Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee are getting ready to publicly release a scathing report on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan one year ago. CNN has seen a final draft of the report. It says the withdrawal was, quote, poorly planned and poorly executed and that the Biden administration did not plan for all contingencies. The report also argues the Biden administration, quote, repeatedly misled the American public. Joining us live to discuss CNN White House reporter Natasha Bertrand and CNN national security correspondent Kylie Atwood. Kylie, let's start with you. One of the most startling details in this report is the revelation that only three dozen State Department officials were on the ground for the evacuation, 36 people. What kind of impact did that lack of staffing cause? Yeah, and Jake, that is the highest number of officials that were on the ground at the height of this evacuation who were able to process these Afghan documents, these Afghans who were trying to get into the airport and then trying to get on these evacuation flights. Uh, Essentially, what that meant was that each State Department official was in charge of more than 3,400 of these evacuees, according to this report. Now, the State Department is claiming that the number of consular officers, those are the folks that process these documents, was not a limiting factor in terms of how many Afghans were getting onto the airport grounds and getting out of the airports. They said, uh, the State Department spokesperson said that there were limiting factors, like the entryways into the Kabul airport, but said that those entryways needed to be limited because of the heightened security situation on the ground there. And so the Biden administration is really pushing back on this report, uh, citing its inaccuracies, saying that there are concerns about how this was uh, all pulled off. But they still haven't come out with their own reports as to after action and what could have been done better. Natasha, the Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee say the Biden administration refused to take part in this report. And obviously the Democrats on the committee did not participate. How is the administration responding to this report beyond what we just heard from Kylie? Well, they're saying that they did brief Congress extensively after the fact, right? They have been saying that they have provided over 250 briefings to lawmakers since the non-combatant evacuation operation, that massive evacuation operation from Afghanistan uh, was finished, and that they have participated extensively in conversations with lawmakers about lessons learned, uh, what could have been done better, et cetera. But broadly, they're responding to this with points that they've made multiple times before. The National Security Council actually issued a memo to interested parties explaining that the many things that are outlined in this House committee report are uh, inaccurate. And they're saying that it's riddled with inaccuracies, falsehoods, cherry-picked information. They're saying essentially that the House Republicans wanted to engage in an endless war and that really the only options, as the administration has said repeatedly, were to either pull out completely or to ramp up the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, and that they were not prepared to do that. They are also saying that any claim that the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan has made the U.S. less safe is also untrue uh, because of a recent intelligence assessment that was done after the strike on Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, uh, that that shows that al-Qaeda has not reconstituted itself in the country. That is according to a declassified summary of the assessment that was provided to us that there are fewer than a dozen al-Qaeda members still in the country and that they have no plans as of right now to attack the homeland. And so all of this is just kind of they're reiterating the idea here that the United States really had no option 
and they inherited a very bad deal from the Trump administration. James. All right, Kylie Atwood and Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York. He is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, we will have the Republican uh, ranking member on the show tomorrow. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I do want to start with your reaction to this report from your Republican colleagues on foreign affairs, um, something the ranking member Mike McCall of Texas said earlier today. Take a listen. We wanted this to be bipartisan, but there was no appetite on the Democratic side. There was initially, Kate, in fairness to my chairman, Chairman Meeks, who I have a lot of respect for, but they got word from the administration, this is not a good news story, and stand down. And so they stopped uh, having any hearings on this. You and McCall, generally speaking, work pretty well together in a pretty bipartisan fashion, Mr. Chairman. Uh, What's your reaction to what uh, Congressman McCall said? No, you know, we had over 14 hearings and briefings from various individuals from the administration. In fact, right afterwards, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, the first committee he testified before on what took place was our committee. We continued and we still are. The fact of the matter is, though, if you want to examine what took place uh, on those 20 days uh, up to leading up to the evacuation of Afghanistan, you can't. That's just you got to look at the 20 years. There's so many interconnecting factors therein that led to that final result. And so what we said was, let's look at all 20 years. Let's look at what took place, what led up and what circle and what we could do to uh, make sure that this never happens again. There's clearly it was not perfect. Nothing is ever perfect. But we thought that it needed to if we're going to be serious about it, similar to what the special inspector for general uh, for the general uh, for Afghan reconstruction uh, said, uh, similar to uh, a commission that was authorized by Congress, where we're still waiting for a Republican co-chair to be uh, added mm-hmm. on, that we thought that to do that uh, in a comprehensive manner. So for me, and yes, you're right, Mike McCall and I get along very well. But for me, what they wanted to do was just a a small focus without looking at the contributions and what took place by everybody that led up to the uh, to the to the uh, uh, to the fall in, in Kabul, and nobody predicted. You know, I also saw that that it was predictable by the intelligence committee. But wow. I dare say, no one predicted that it was going to fall in the day that it that it fell. We did have predictions that uh, as the evacuation was beginning, yeah, that we had to hurry up. That there was some uh, danger of uh, of what we saw that took place. Uh, that horrifying bomb that took place by the airport. Right but now, uh, we are still working very closely to make sure that we have an accurate report uh, of what did in fact take place. I know the State Department is doing something. We'll wait to see what they have also. Right, I, I certainly think there is value in taking a look at the United States' twenty-year involvement in Afghanistan. Um, but I also see that there is a point. There would be a point in taking a discreet look at just the withdrawal, uh, which was disastrous. And 13 service members were killed and others were killed. And that in and of itself could have been handled uh, far differently. Uh, and I, it would have been, just as an American, it would be nice to have a bar- bipartisan oversight of the executive branch to take a look at that one part of the, with- of the withdrawal, because it is different than... Should the United States, you know, the bigger questions about 20 years, 
Should the United States get involved in nation building? Should the United States, you know, is there any way to, to, do, to, to in, engage in such a, an effort successfully versus what's the better way for the U.S. to withdraw in the future? And I mean, I, you and McCall do work well together. I, it, it would have been nice if Democrats had joined in and provided this oversight. Oh, but the, the problem with that is that uh, you just had in your, in your last segment talking about the number of individuals who were on on duties from the State Department. Well, there's issues that took place before that that caused the number of people that were there. Uh, could that have been different? Could you have more folks? And there's more that you have to look at because there were circumstances. Some say they should have been and could have had uh, left in more individuals there or could have been more individuals on the ground. Uh, at that particular time. Well, there were things circumventing um, issues uh, that caused that to be in place. So that's why it's hard to just isolate it. You have to ask those questions. And we have been asking those questions. uh, And we're getting some of the answers. We're looking at, uh, as I said, a number of the uh, other reports. And we would like, that's one of the reasons why the the Congress uh, authorized a commission in a bipartisan way to look at just those things is uh, it, so that we could make sure that everybody was participating. And that's why we had the briefings uh, that we've had, uh, both in classified and unclassified manners, so that we could make those observations. Is uh, it but true? When we, you know, and when McCall and I got together, it seemed to me clear, uh, unfortunately on this one, they wanted a, a, a investigation uh, as opposed to a review. Uh, and that investigation was simply uh, pulling out certain things that are, I believe were inaccurate, as uh, as as in fact the report does show. Is it true what McCall said at all? And we're running out of time, so if you could keep your answer short, that'd be great. Um, is it true at all what McCall suggested that you were eager to participate, and then the White House asked you to not do it because it would be a bad story for Democrats? No, the White House never asked me not to do it. Bad story that never occurred. Absolutely not. You know, just as we see, you know. We and the legislative branch make our own decisions of what we do. Uh, The White House uh, does not interfere and tell us what to do on this committee. Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Good to see you again, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. And a reminder, we will have uh, the ranking Republican uh, Congressman Michael McCall on the show tomorrow to talk about his report. Coming up next, how Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is using the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago in his home state to motivate Republican voters in Florida and elsewhere. Stay with us. He's got BDE. Anybody know what that means? I call it Big DeSantis Energy. He's got the same kind of BDE that President Trump has. Well, if you don't know what BD actually stands for, feel free to Google it. That was Trump-backed Arizona candidate for Governor Kerry Lake energizing MAGA Republicans in their first big rally Since the FBI search on former President Trump's Florida home, as she and headliner Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are aiming to rebrand the grand old party, CNN's Kyung La talks with Republicans in Arizona now to find out if the Trump wing's rambunctious language will sway or alienate voters. East meets West in a show of a united Republican front. The headliner of this Arizona rally... Florida governor and possible 2024 hopeful Ron DeSantis. 
from the beaches of Florida to the deserts of Arizona, November 8th, 2022, is going to be the day that America fights back. To energize this Phoenix crowd, DeSantis turned his political fire to the news in his state. The FBI search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. They're enforcing the law based on who they like and who they don't like. That is not a republic. Well, it may be it's a banana republic when that happens. Echoed by Republican nominee for Arizona Governor Carrie Lake, heavy on grievance, light on facts. And then these people sent politically motivated federal agents to President Donald Trump's home and raided it. How dare they? This is the first large political rally since the Mar-a-Lago search. How much is that affecting Republicans who are going to be voting this year in the midterms? Well, I hope it's a lot. I hope it ignites people, gets them out there, and they want to help support the Republican ticket. After what happened on Monday, we have to show our support for the president, the real president anyway. Here in Arizona, where Trump's 2020 election lie still thrives in a big swath of the GOP, his endorsed candidates swept in the state's primary. Carrie Lake defeated a Republican backed by former Vice President Mike Pence and the establishment. The Republican Party isn't your great-great-grandfather's party anymore. U.S. Senate candidate Blake Masters is also Trump-endorsed. It will be Arizona first and America first all the way. The proof is in the primary, say voters in this crowd, that the more centrist Arizona Republican Party of John McCain is gone. We feel McCain is a total traitor. I believe he was a rhino. In this theater, party unity and its success in November is under the banner of Trump. I spoke with the Democratic nominee for governor here in the state of Arizona, Katie Hobbs, and she disagrees with this philosophy of running to Trump in November as the ticket to win. One third of registered voters in the state are independents. And Hobbs believes by catering to them, talking to them directly, is a way to win in this battleground state. Jake. All right, Kyung La, thank you so much. Let's bring in our panel. And Brendan, let me start with you, because if Arizona's election-denying Republican gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, and the Republican Secretary of State candidate, if they had held office in 2020, they say they would have decertified the results and overturned the election in favor of Trump, even though that's not how the voters of Arizona voted and in fact, according to a Washington Post analysis, quote, across the battleground states that decide the 2020 vote, candidates who deny the legitimacy of that election have claimed nearly two thirds of GOP nominations for state and federal offices with authority over, Republic, uh, over elections. You're a Republican who supports democracy and election results. Um, how do you respond to this? This has always been the biggest threat. You know, we talk about the voting laws in Georgia and Texas, and a lot of people had issues with those. This is always the threat. The people who are actually in charge, who have to sign off on elections, can, are, are election deniers. That's the big problem. And you, you, you're in a situation here where you would think that in a general election, maybe you would temper some of this, that maybe you were just trying to get through a primary. But it's clearly these people truly believe this stuff, and that's what's scary about it. Uh, and some of the Democrats uh, have been accused of playing with fire by supporting these more extremist Republican candidates hoping that will give them a leg up. We saw that play out in Michigan with Congressman Peter Meyer. What do you think? Can the Democrats say that this is actually an existential threat to the country, but we're going to play cute with it by nominating, by helping to nominate some of these 
election-denying Republicans? Yeah, I think it's quite dangerous because it's not just what happens in 2022. They're laying the foundation for the next presidential election in 24 because these people, if they win, they will be the ones that have to decide whether or not to certify the next election. So we are in an existential crisis. We cannot allow people who will break the law, who will lie, who believe a lot, the big lie um, to to be elected. And I don't think, I think Democrats could win even if they were, had moderates that they were running against um, in the Republican Party. And Francesca, the Washington Post is also reporting that a group of lawyers aligned with Trump led a team of computer experts to obtain data from election software as part of a broad, organized, multi-state uh, effort. This is after the 2020 election. You covered Trump. Are you surprised by how well organized some of this was? Well, we know that uh, after the election that they were in many of these states trying to do what the Washington Post described there. And we also know that that Republicans have been trying to get in their own people in some of these states following that election because they do think they could be decided at that that level in the, the 2024 election. And this is why uh, those groups have been so focused on getting in Republican attorney general that will be able to uh, take it to the courts after the election, if uh, not just in 2022, but in 2024, potentially also if they don't get the result that they want. So, Casey, you were in uh, Wyoming a couple weeks ago. I was there last week, although for, for fun, <laughs> slightly different for fun, not for I'm work. I'm jealous of your trip. Um, so, but, but Liz Cheney, obviously, is running for re-election, and she is facing a she very is. strong challenge uh, from a Republican named uh, Harriet Hageman. A University of Wyoming poll found Cheney trailing by nearly 30 points last week. Last, uh, last week, 30 points. CNN has reported that Cheney is obviously looking ahead to 2024, potentially. Yeah. Um, is there enough appetite, you think, for an anti-Trump Republican presidential candidate, uh, more so perhaps than, than one in Wyoming for Congress? I think it's a really tricky path forward for Liz Cheney. I think that they're very aware that she's unlikely to win uh, next Tuesday. But I think that they're basically... I mean, she, she, I think she deeply believes that it is actually worth what, what has happened. It is worth losing her seat and that that is what makes her different from so many other Republicans in the Trump era who just were not willing to potentially give up their own power in service to a greater good being the country and, and democracy. And, you know, I think she's really taking a stand on that. I mean, when I was out there, I heard her talk to voters about it. It wasn't just in interviews with the national media. It was what she was saying to her constituents there on the ground. But you know, it's a tough path forward. I mean, as you know, I think everyone at this table knows, running in the Republican primary on a Liz Cheney platform, it's a really tough sell. And, and on that subject, I think there were a lot of Republicans who didn't support Trump, but were hopeful that they could have the Trump policies in an aggressive candidate in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But DeSantis uh, is disappointing a lot of those Republicans because he is on stage with all of these election deniers, supporting them as much as he can, Carrie Lake. Uh, and Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. He's doing an event with him, too, as well. Uh, it is, yeah, it, it is the Trump party. Whether you have Trump or not, they're all imitating how he did. And it's, it's the lesson that they learned from him, is that you don't need to appeal to the middle anymore. If you turn out base Republicans, you play to the base every step of the way, there's a path to victory. I think that's very short-sighted. I don't think that's a good long-term play, but it's what every Republican across uh, the country is, is trying to emulate. Now, is there a path for a Liz Cheney to broaden us back out to a traditional conservative party? I hope so, but I, I don't know. I, I really doubt it. Is there even a path, though, at this point for Ron DeSantis? If Donald Trump runs, you may have seen the morning consult poll that showed that now 58 percent of Republican voters say that they would back Trump. And this is after the FBI search. Well, yeah, his numbers actually, went up. Is that, yeah. yeah, his numbers actually went up. And Trump world says, see, we're consolidating support. And it went up at the expense of Ron DeSantis, who went down by 5 percent in that particular 
particular poll. So Republican strategists are telling me that they see that the pathway is actually narrowing for Ron DeSantis or anybody else after that. Do you see the Democrats meeting this moment in terms of they're trying to appeal to these voters in the the middle to trying to appeal to disillusioned Republicans, such as my friend here to my right? I mean, or, or, or do you think Democrats are struggling with that? I, I think they have to do a better job. You probably saw there was a memo that came out from the White House that they were going to go on a messaging tour. They have to talk to the entire base, not just black and brown voters, which they need to excite and they need to turn out because they will not win if people my age and younger and of color voters stay home. That is very clear. But they also have platforms or policies that they can go to talk to suburban um, white moms, to talk to the rural farmer and not just say that we're doing something for you. But if you pick somebody else, they're not going to do anything for you. We are trying and we need to expand our margins. I don't think that they have landed the plane just yet on the messaging, but they do still have some time. Do you do you agree? Uh, You you know, I think the challenge uh, for Democrats here, I mean, one of the things that I think is on the flip side of what's happened over the past week in terms of Trump, I mean, it's put Trump front and center again in the midterms. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's good for Democrats, no matter which way you slice it. You think? I I, I do think that that's certainly Democratic strategists I talk to would love for the midterms to be about Trump. And now they also have a bunch of policies that they can also sell yeah. on top of it. So midterms they're in a much stronger referendum on the president. Right. And for once, you might actually have a chance where it could be a bit of a choice. Yeah. You have between right. the January 6th hearings that are reminding people of what Donald Trump did. You have candidates across the country who are crazy, kooky, um, and, and reminding people that Republicans are not the same party that they used to be. And so I think that's where Democrats have a chance to actually have a choice election, which is what everybody always tries to have in midterms but can never pull off. And you all throw right. abortion in there, and it and just lights like, the Democratic yeah. base up more. I guess we'll see. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. <laughs> Ahead to Texas, where a youth football game turned deadly. Now the brother of a former NFL star has turned himself in. What police are saying about this case, that's next. International lead, a youth football coach was killed after a game And after two days on the run, his suspected shooter is now in police custody. Law enforcement says the shooting took place Saturday night in a Dallas suburb after an argument started following a peewee football game, during which football coach Mike Hickman was shot three times in front of his nine-year-old son. Hickman died from his injuries. The suspect, Yaqub Talib, brother of former NFL star Aqib Talib, turned himself into police a short while ago after the weekend manhunt. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us now live from Dallas with more on this tragic story. And Ed, you you spoke with the suspect's attorney. Uh, What did he have to say? Well, after being on the run essentially for two days, a shooting, as you mentioned, happened Saturday night. An attorney for Yacoub Tlaib says that while he regrets the loss of life, he turned himself in so he could tell his side of the story. When we asked to clarify exactly what that side of the story is for Tlaib, uh, the attorney just says that uh, defense will be an issue at some point. So they're a suggestion of self-defense. But what has happened here, we have video of the altercation. We warn you before we play the video, it is dramatic and difficult to watch. But in that altercation, you can see a number of what we believe to be uh, coaches at this football game. And in the course of that video and in that altercation between what police in Lancaster, Texas say, uh, it was a fight between the opposing coaches. You can hear five different gunshots erupt from there. And as you mentioned, um, the son of the victim, Michael Hickman, who's 43 years old, was at this at the scene of the shooting. This was uh, happened Saturday night, um, and it was a, a, a dramatic scene to say the least. And some of the witnesses who were there are speaking out. What do they have to say? 
Well, you, the, um, one of the coaches, of, one of Michael Hickman's uh, fellow coaches, uh, talked about it, uh, his son being at the game on the field uh, as all of this happened. Um, and he said, you know, he basically had to console the young man who had just witnessed this horrific event happen right in front of him. That's horrible. Like- I held his son, little Mike, Mike Jr., and I held him like my son. And it, it was very, very, very hard to hold him and console him because, again, I mean, just, just letting them know that we'll be there for them. This is something that these kids will remember for the rest of their life. They'll never forget this moment. The only thing that I want right now is just justice. And that's all. Jake, Yacoub Talib is still in jail here uh, in Dallas. We're waiting to find out what his bond is going to be. And at some point this week, he's expected to have a bond hearing as well. Jake? It's so senseless and awful. Ed Levandera, thanks so much. Next to Ukraine and a roadblock for Russian forces months into the invasion. Stay with us. And our world lead Ukraine says it has now defused more than 180,000 explosive devices since the start of Russia's invasion. This, as we learn, Ukraine is forcing Russia to evacuate from parts of the southern Kherson region after Ukrainian forces made a third key bridge in the area impassable, making it even more difficult for Russia to move heavy military equipment and ammunition. CNN's David McKenzie joins us now live from Kiev. And David, what is the significance of Russia pulling back its forces from that area? Well, Jake, it's significant, and I think this may be a key moment, the fact that the Ukrainian forces are able to strike over the Russian positions into those bridges, those supply lines in the southern part of this conflict, potentially cutting off those troops. Now, they're doing that because of the longer-range artillery, including that given by the U.S. government. Uh, Some troops from Russia have moved away from the one side of that river, Uh, But there's still a ways to go, and the Ukrainians are hoping to encircle those Russian troops uh, to try and cut them off. Jake? Growing concern about a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. That's the largest in Europe, uh, that power plant. What's happening there? Well, there have been several days of accusations and counter-accusations of strikes, artillery and rocket strikes, very near to those reactors in the southern part of this country. That's, of course, very alarming because of the chance of a leak or even fallout from that that could affect this country and the entire region. Just a short time ago, President Zelensky of Ukraine saying that there needs to be sanctions on Russia's state-owned nuclear company. He also says if the world can't figure out one nuclear plant one safety issue with that area, then they will generally lose out. The UN Secretary General has had discussions with the Defense Minister of Russia to try and ensure the safety of that region. Russian troops, uh, Jake, have been in that area since March. They took control of that nuclear power station, but they've been lobbying indirect fire across the river to Ukrainian positions. And there are real fears that if not a direct strike on a actual a nuclear reactor, but cutting off the power would be very significant because it could lead to a Fukushima-like disaster. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up, work from home benefits, rent around $800. The major city that's turning into a magnet for outsiders from the U.S., that's next. In our world lead, a growing number of Americans are crossing the southern border and making Mexico City their new home. The reason? Well, remote work and cheaper living costs. But local residents in Mexico City say Americans are bringing in gentrification and are driving up everyday costs for Mexicans. 
CNN's David Culver takes a look at the cause and effect of Americans settling in Mexico City. Look past the charming cafes, scenic parks, flashy apartments, and you'll see this capital city for what it's becoming, a refuge for migrants. I grew up in New York. L.A. Atlanta, Georgia. Perhaps not the border crossing you expected. Americans leaving pricey U.S. cities, heading south to work from home in Mexico City. It is starting to feel like home. I've been here for for several months already. Born and raised in the U.S., Eric Rodriguez hardly speaks Spanish and admits he's not here to rediscover his Mexican roots so much as to save money. In San Diego, my apartment was probably $2,500. For one bedroom? For for, for a studio. For a studio. Uh, Here, I have a one bedroom and I pay $800 a month. The State Department says 1.6 million U.S. citizens live in Mexico. But they don't say how many are living and working there on tourist visas. The Mexican government does not track that data either. But they recorded more than 5.3 million American tourists flying in during just the first five months of this year. Nearly a million more than that same period in 2019, pre-pandemic. Rodriguez is among the unrecorded but undeniably present so-called digital nomads, here officially as tourists, most working remotely for U.S. companies, still getting paid in U.S. dollars, allowing for a far more affordable life in Mexico. I think there was a sense of, we want people to come here to stimulate the economy. Thank you for being here. But I know that recently there's been um, kind of complaints from locals about the effect that expats living here has had on their own um, lifestyles. Sandra Ortiz is one of them. Los precios más elevados porque saben que es por the prices are going up high. She said it's difficult because a lot of these foreigners come and they have a bunch of money to be able to spend on some of these apartments and rents. For more than 50 years, Ortiz and her four siblings ran a restaurant popular with locals on a prime corner in the increasingly desirable Roma neighborhood. But as prices climbed, Ortiz says it became unaffordable for the family. And in February, she says they were evicted. All their belongings piled onto the sidewalk. You had five minutes to get everything out and move it out of the the business. So where do the locals go? That's what we need to be asking ourselves, Fernando Bustos Grospe tells me. The pandemic, coupled with global inflation, have made matters worse, leaving locals in fear of a culture clash. This is part of the problem, he says. The expats move here because it's cheap, not because they want to truly immerse in the local culture. Families like the Ortizes feel they're getting pushed out. Sandra and two of her siblings now working at another restaurant, no longer the owners. The thought of visiting their old restaurant? Too painful. We went by, renovations already underway. High-end apartments coming soon. And Jake, for folks who are looking at this report and say, well, perhaps I'll take my work from home to Mexico City, it does seem like there is an unofficial crackdown underway right now on part of the Mexican government. We're hearing from some U.S. travelers who say that as soon as they arrive, Mexican officials at the border are limiting their stay to some as few as just 10 days, saying they need to leave after being in the country for 10 days. Now, again, this is unofficial. So we've asked the Mexican government about this. They say, as of now, their current policy still stands, so there's no change. But it does show you there is some effort to try to curb this a bit. That said, it's a delicate dance for some of these officials, because on one part, they want to crack down and and try to limit people staying too long. But on the other, 
Jake, they don't want to dissuade U.S. tourism, which brings in billions of dollars every year. Interesting. David Culver, thank you so much for that report. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you know, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. It's sitting there just like some grapes hanging there. Delicious. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.